Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This week, the Secret Library podcast is sponsored by Audible. To get a 30-day trial complete with a free audiobook download, visit secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. This is episode 99. My guest this week is Emma Longworth, who has written for the Washington Post, the London Times, the Independent, and Bon Appetit magazine. She's the author of a mystery series set in southern France, Verlac and Bonnet Provençal Mysteries, published by Penguin. Death at the Chateau Bremont was published in June 2011, and the series has followed since. The most recent installment is The Secrets of the Bastide Blanche. She has lived full-time in France for over 19 years and divides her time between Aix-en-Provence, where she writes, and Paris, where she teaches writing at New York University's Paris campus. I was so excited to speak to M.L. Longworth because I have long really enjoyed her mystery series because of how beautifully it captures the atmosphere, the food, and the charm of Southern France. And I was particularly excited to speak to her about her story of how she and her husband on a lark did a search while on vacation in France to see if maybe they might be able to move there. And then the rest is history. So... She was very generous in sharing the story of how she moved to France, how her writing life began there, and how she's been successfully publishing books and teaching writing ever since. If you've ever dreamed of being an expat and writing from another place in the world, I know this episode will be incredibly inspiring. So let's get started with ML Longworth. Hey, ML, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have. Um, I was excited to talk to you because I have been reading um, the series up to this yeah. point. So I was like, oh, how exciting because <laughs> as, a, as a Francophile, I can't resist um, any story that takes place in France. And maybe we should start with France because you're a Canadian writer who's ended up in X and I'm you know, and you've done it, you know, there's a lot of people sort of moving abroad these days, but you did it quite some time ago. So I'm interested in how you started in Canada and ended up in France. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, it was 20 years ago that we arrived in France. But before that, we were in California for almost 10 years, for about nine years. And we were in Santa Cruz, just south of San Francisco on the Monterey Bay. And uh, I was doing graduate work in art history. My husband had a job um, taking care of a website for a small Silicon Valley uh, startup. And our daughter was just turning four. She was, she was three and a half. And the startup was sold. And so we had a chance either to find another job or move to Oregon where the company um, was going to be relocated 
or do something kind of crazy. And we were on our way to France. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we were, we loved California. We loved Santa Cruz, especially, but we'd always talked about wanting our daughter to, to be bilingual. Um, and we had planned a two week trip to, to France, you know, kind of a, uh, a typical one week in Paris, one week in Provence. Um, I had never been to Provence, but my husband had. And he spoke French. His mother was a French professor um, growing, growing up at a university near Toronto. So he, he and his uh, sisters were raised speaking French. Um, so we wanted the same thing for our daughter. So it was just before we were um, about to, to fly to Paris. And I was in his office playing on his computer, and it was um, the internet was brand new. And I said, "How does this internet thing work?" It was before, <laughs> yeah, and it was before Google. So he said, "Well, whatever you're looking for, just tap in some keywords. Three keywords is usually good." And so I tapped in France computers jobs, and I found a job for in France for a webmaster, which is what my husband was doing. And it was 1996 then, November 1996, and they wanted somebody bilingual, French-English, with Silicon Valley experience. Oh, perfect. <laughs> it was perfect. And so I read out the job description to my husband. He said, that sounds like me. And, and I said, I know. And I said, well, why don't you try to get an interview? And he, we looked at the name of the, where the, the company was. We'd never heard of the company. It was a French company. And the, it was located in a place called Geminos. And and he said, don't, don't get too excited about that. It's probably an awful suburb of Paris, you know, in, uh, in an industrial zone. Um, and so we, I ran across the street to the bookshop, Bookshop Santa Cruz, and bought a Michelin map and brought it back to his office. And we looked up the location of Geminos, and it was, looked like it was about a 15-minute drive from the Mediterranean uh, down in Provence. And so he immediately That's called. That's a little better. Yeah, it's a little better than a than an industrial suburb. Yeah, and uh, so he called the company up and explained, "I'm going to be in Provence in two weeks on vacation." And they said, "Can you come for an interview?" You know, after they he had sent them the, his resume. Um, and so he went for the interview. He said, I was in a little cafe. It was a beautiful weather. And so I was sitting outside and he told the waiter, take care of my wife and my daughter. They don't speak French. And the waiter was very obliging, filling, refilling my, my cup, <laughs> my glass with a rosé. And, and our daughter just went off and started playing with the kids, you know, in the, in the village square, or, you know, right in front of the cafe. And it was very, um, very, very picturesque. And my husband came back two hours later and he said, the interview went really well. I'm really worried. I'm I'm worried now. <laughs> and, yeah, because you know you dream about something, and then when it's actually handed to you, then you say, oh my gosh, you know we weren't serious about this. <laughs> what do we do? And uh, a few days later, we were at our hotel, our hotel in Toulouse, um, in the southwest, and the company called and they said we'd like to offer you the job, and we'll give you two weeks to think about it to decide. So. We flew home to California. That's very civilized. Yes, yeah. And we thought about it. And all of our friends said, go, <laughs> you know, go. And so we did. And we thought we'd stay for two years. Um, and we, we found uh, a, a house uh, in Aix-en-Provence. We kind of decided that's where, where we wanted to be, um, which was only about a 25-minute drive to, to Geminos, this little village. Um, and we thought, well, we'll give it two years. And so we've been here 20 years. <laughs> and uh, our daughter's now 24 and works in, she, li she lives and works in Paris. And um, we're very, very happy here. So, voila. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I'm amazed that you didn't speak French going into this because your series of books is so um, 
I think uh, one of the things that many people say, and, and I loved about it too, is it, it's like, I mean, obviously you have lots of experience being there, but it feels like a native talking about their home. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And, and I think the thing is we live here full time and we immediately put our daughter into a French school, um, public school, and had, and even though there's a pretty big expat community in X, we didn't join any expat groups. Um, and we lived downtown in an apartment building. And when you live downtown in an apartment building, you really do have to, you know, make friends quickly, be friends with your neighbors, because everyone lives in, in close proximity. And all our neighbors were French. And, um, and as, uh, so Eva, our daughter, immediately, you know, met friends. So we became friends of the parents, you know, and I think, mm. I think it helps to have a child in the, in the, the public school system where wherever, whenever you live to a new, move to a new place. And we were on the third floor in an apartment and the woman who was on the first floor, she was a math, she is a math teacher in a, in a local, high, local high school. And she had three children. One of them was Eva's age and she and I became best friends. And um, she was recently divorced. She needed a friend. You know, I needed a friend because, you know, I didn't speak French yet. We, you know, we were new to the city. Um, and that, that really, really helped. And through her, you know, we met other people and we became, you know, a very close group of friends, about, you know, 12 or 14 of us. So, um, yeah, I do very much feel like a, a local. Amazing. So, and, <laughs> and then you have, you just learned French as an adult because you were thrown into the deep yes. end. That's right. I mean, growing up near Toronto, we, we did do, you know, a fair number of French classes in, in junior high, not even in junior high, mostly high school, but it was, you know, very, very basic. And um, so I, I had to start over at, you know, age 35. Amazing. But, you know, have, having friends, you know, helps because you want to make yourself understood and you, under, under, you want to understand what's being said at a, you know, at a dinner party or when you're shopping or whatever. So. Yeah, it's a whole different level when you get into that. So, no. So then you, how um, did you begin to write the series and how, how did the series come out of this experience of living there? Yeah. Um, well, as, as soon as we moved here, I mean, my husband was busy with his new job and then um, uh, Eva then, you know, when she was five started school and I found myself at home without working papers because you have, it takes quite a while to get them in France. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll just start, I'll start writing. I'll start writing about France. I'll start writing about X. Um, and, uh, I had taken a class in Santa Cruz about, um, sort of one of those weekends classes, you know, release the writer within you, one of those kinds of <laughs> classes. And, um, my husband said, you know, the things that you did for that class that, you know, I enjoyed reading them. And when you write letters back home, everyone says, oh, you know, your letters are, are really fun to read. He said, why don't you try writing about X and it off to a newspaper? So because I had done work in art history, I wrote about Cezanne because Paul Cezanne is, is from X. And mm -hmm. I wrote about a travel, what I thought was a travel article for, for you know, a newspaper about Cezanne's ex. And I sent it to the New York Times, uh, very pleased with myself that it was, you know, I finished it and I thought it was well written and well researched. And I got a postcard back from the New York Times. No, thank you. You know, so, <laughs> so oh. I, I filed that. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I filed that away. And, and um, my husband said, why don't you try for a really small newspaper? You know, the Santa Cruz Sentinel or, you, you know, uh, so I didn't listen to his advice, and I sent it to the Washington Post. And the travel editor at the Times wrote me back. I remember his name was Craig. And uh, I, I still have his email because it, it was so nice. It was 
um, he, he said, you're almost there. He says, I really like the article, but you're missing, you're still writing a little bit like an art historian and you're missing the senses. Um, and this mm. is something that I talk about with my students at NYU. He goes, go back into X, go back into the hills where Cezanne walked. What did he smell? What did he taste? What did he hear? Um, and those were the things that I, you know, as a, as a novice, I was kind of missing. So I wrote the article over, taking his advice, and he bought it. So uh, that was my, so I began kind of slowly be, uh, writing freelance articles on, on uh, tr travel around in Provence uh, and, and in X and um, wrote some things for Bon Appetit magazine. Mm. Um, and uh, so that was great fun. And uh wrote something for an essay for the wine spectator and then some things for the times in, in London, a few more things for the Washington post. And so slowly I was, um, I was, uh, you know, sort of writing freelance articles on, on travel and, and food and wine. But, um, but then after a few years of doing that, I, f I felt like I was out of the loop that I, I, I didn't really know what American readers wanted because I was living in France and right. a, and I saw a job posting for um, a, a creative writing teacher at New York University's Paris campus. And this was actually years later. And then by that time, Eva was in junior high and, um, and uh, my husband was very comfortable at his job. And I said, you know what, I think I'm going to go for this job. It would mean commuting, you know, I'd have to take the train to Paris once, you know, once a week. And he said, no, I think that's a really good idea. So so I got the. I went up to Paris for the interview, and I got the job. And during the interview, the the dean came from New York to interview. Oh, nice! And yeah, and, and the, the interview, uh, you know, went well. And and he looked at all my articles, and he was very pleased with them. And he, and he said, "You do have a book in the works, don't you?" And um, <laughs> <laughs> and at this point, I had started writing the first um, uh, Verlac and Bonnet mystery. Um, about Chateau Bramont, death at the Chateau Bramont. But I, it was about three quarters finished and I put it in a drawer because I was just so terrified, you know, terrified of, of other people reading it, terrified of criticism. Um, you know, I was even kind of afraid to show it to my husband. Uh, so I didn't finish it. It was in a drawer. And when the dean asked me that you do have a book in the works, I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, yeah, I, yes, yes, I do. So, you know, on the train, on the way home, I immediately, you know, pulled up my computer and, you know, and started finishing it. Um, and finished it in record time and then got an agent, um, Catherine Fawcett at Curtis Brown. And she's a real Francophile. She's from New Orleans. So I really lucked out with her. And then she found us Penguin. And that was, that was how the first book, um, I always thought that uh, X would be a great setting for, for a mystery. There are a lot of mysteries um, set in Marseille, which is kind of, uh, you know, the big bad city down the road from X. But I always thought, X we, reminded me a little bit of the of Oxford and you know in the Inspector Morris series the, you know right. this beautiful quiet college town and I thought it'd be a good setting for mysteries. Yeah, it's a totally different kind of scandal because Marseille is like you know they're always talking about the underworld in Marseille. Yes. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and X it's more family secrets. That's one of the things that I've really enjoyed is that I think it's easy in a in a mystery to kind of. I don't know. It's almost, it, it's, I've seen this a lot because I do love mysteries and read them a lot. Mm. And that you'll have like kind of a cardboardy victim. Like the victim mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily, it's like, oh, he was such a bastard, you know? And right. now we get to, now we get to figure out who did it because there are so many candidates. But I think one of the things that I've loved about your series and in particularly in the 
the most recent is like how much care goes into each of the characters, no matter who they are. And oh, their backstory you. and their life is as much a part of the story that they're not just some, you know, body on the carpet, so to speak. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite part. One of my favorite parts of writing uh, fiction is the is the character, developing the character. And, and before I start, even when I have sort of just the, the vague inkling of an idea from my next story, I'll go to Monoprix, which is our, our department store here in, in France, and I'll buy um, a few just notebooks, you know, the cheap notebooks that, that kids yeah. use at school. And I'll start with my characters that way and just start writing down anything, writing down their names. I really like trying to find uh, interesting names, but that are names that are easy for, for Anglos to pronounce and, and to, to read. And then I just start filling in with start. I start with their name, and then just start filling in kind of everything I can can think about their personality. Um, you know what they look like, their education, their work. You know whether they're married, whether they have kids, where they grew up in France. Because where you grew up in France too, that really kind of sometimes it may, can make you a distinctive character. You know, people from Brittany are very different than people from Provence, let's say. So um, I have I have fun with the characters, and I think people are so important. Yeah, I think, and I think the other thing that's that's wonderful is the kind of ongoing relationship between the two main characters that you know uh -huh. you'll often have in a series of of detective novels. You'll have a partner, you know, two investigators, and they have kind mm -hmm. of a bantery thing. But it's different mm -hmm. when it's sort of this romance um, that at the beginning is quite fraught a little bit yes. in the yes. beginning of the series. Um, and I, I love also getting. The perspective, particularly in the first book that unfolds um, from each side of them talking about, well, he did this and she did this, you know, about the relationship mm -hmm. and that that's sort of going through the center of the investigation and that they each have abilities that are unique to bring to the process. Yes, yes. I'm, I I wanted to start with, I was getting a little bit tired of the, especially with, um, we'll say, police stories or uh, policiers, as they, they call them here in France, where yeah. the, the, the investigator or the, or the police officer is usually, is a single man who maybe who's divorced and who's, and uh, he's, you know, has drinking problem or, you yeah, know, he's, he's very depressed. These, yeah, he's depressed, you know, a Wallander type guy. And as much as I yep. like Wallander, uh, I thought, well, I don't want to make my guy like that, even though I, I made Verlat kind of tough and hard to break through, crack through at the beginning. But I wanted, I knew in my mind, I wanted a married couple who were happy, who were, who had a good relationship. Um, and so I wanted to develop Marine and Antoine's relationship that way, where it, you know, by the fourth or fifth book, they're they're they you know they're in a good space in their relationship, and um, and somebody just uh, I, I forget who it was one of the the reviewers described them as the thin man you know from the thin man series of the uh, Myrna Loy and who is it is it um, I forget who plays her husband in the series but I thought that was a great compliment to me it's it's you know that they kind of they they go through the investigation and she as a law professor and as a, somebody who grew up in X brings her side of the story whereas uh, Antoine Verlac is kind of an outsider he's Parisian he's posh um you know but he's the the magistrate so you know as you say they they work they can work together that way yeah absolutely i love them described as yeah X is Nick and Nora which, yeah Nick, uh, yes Kirkus, Kirkus, uh, <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it was I think, mm. yeah, I think it's, it. there is something about, you know, bringing different sides of it. And I do love the insider outsider, because I think as the reader, you get to 
I always love an outsider character because mm-hmm. often, almost always when you're reading a book, you're an outsider as well and getting That's to identify right. with him. I don't know if I'm as posh as, as Verlock is. You know? <laughs> I don't have a vintage Porsche. <laughs> um, but um, it, I think that there's something about how they also are enjoying life, which is so different. And I think there is something right. lovely. It's like, aside from the murder part, there's a little bit about of a a vacation element of getting to go on a trip reading it. And in the most recent installment out, you know, that you all want to dive into, there's there's also a house that is a center point that you get to explore. And there's something really yeah. wonderful about exploring a mysterious house um, that's so well described in the inside of the book. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think my, my food writing, you know, her background comes out in, in the books. Um, and it, it's something that I really love. Uh, you know, I like cooking. We love entertaining here at home. And it's something that we learned. We, we started doing in California, and then we really learned the importance of of entertaining uh, when we moved to to France. And um, and also then the, the houses. Yeah, there are all kinds of just beautiful old houses in the countryside around X called Bastide, which is where the nobility, the X nobility would move to in the hot summer months. So you'd leave mm. your downtown, your downtown mansion and then go out to the countryside. Um, so uh, one of these, I've been in some of these places, um, you know, friends uh, have, I have friends who own some of these places. Usually they're handed down um, in the family. And so, uh, yeah, I love just, it's a, I love just exploring these places. So. I wanted to to describe one of these places. The first book, Bramont, is the same. It's only it's a much bigger mm-hmm. house, but but I thought mm, it's time I, I go back into one of, into another old house. <laughs> I was inspired yeah. to do a ghost ghost story too, but we'll talk about that later, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I think yeah. The interesting the contrast I love is that in the first book, the house is kind of still well it has a caretaker. It's mm-hmm. you know there's a whole family living in the house versus this mm-hmm. one was kind of let. It was bought by um, a famous author after it had gotten a bit run down and it's sort of being brought back to life. And I love both sides of the story. Okay, good. (laughs) So I I wanted to circle back to something you said earlier and talk about how this unfolded over time. But Mm -hmm. the moment when you said you had a book that was three quarters finished and you were just Mm -hmm. terrified. And so Mm -hmm. then it was finished and then it was out in the world. And now there are a number of them out in the world. And I wonder how that how your relationship to the fear of, of the book being out there, how did that evolve and how did that change during the process of getting it published and, and then beginning to write more books? Um, well, the first one, it just, it happened so quickly that it just seemed unbelievable. Um, <laughs> and, you know, especially the, the edit, the whole editing process. And then unfortunately I had a very good editor at Penguin and then she left, she moved from Penguin to another company halfway through. So it just, the first one just, uh, it just all, it happened so fast. And, and like I say, it seemed unbelievable. And then when it was published, it seemed very unbelievable that people were, were reading something uh, I had written. It just, um, even though I had written articles for, you know, for big newspapers, but uh, the book was something else. Um, and then you, you, I don't know about other writers, but I got obsessed with reading every single review. Um, oh, no. You know, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, spending all of my time, you know, just reading, you know, and, uh, obsessing over that. And then after this, the, you know, I'd say the third or fourth book, I think you, I, I found myself not reading the reviews <laughs> all the time, you know, unless my agent and editors, you know, it's, would point them out to me. 
So it does, I must say, it's still, even this is this is book seven, the one that's coming out in, in April, it does still seem un- unbelievable, especially when I get emails from people, you know, saying how much they they enjoy certain things or they ask me questions about uh, about characters or some of my inspiration or, or, or th- and things like that. It's, um, yeah, I must say it's still, I'm still a bit up in the clouds. <laughs> That's great. Well, I think, yeah, once I, I think it, you see this, you know, oh my God, these people are reading it. And I wonder, you know, at first you were just writing the book for yourself. You weren't even. Yes, exactly. Your husband. And then right. how does that change once you realize there are these people out there who are asking questions and want to know about the characters and are invested? Did that, was that inspiring or was that intimidating? Or both? Uh, no, no, inspiring. I would say inspiring because then from the questions, you you, you can kind of figure out what people are interested in, and, mm. and what parts of the book they enjoy. Um, and for example, in each in each book, there's always one chapter that's uh, Antoine Verlac smokes cigars, and he belongs to a cigar club. And I think that's a way into, I mean, X already people always say it's a very closed town, you, you mm. know, so it's it's a very old town um you know steeped in history and tradition and people always say it's very very hard for you to meet um exwa people who 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 are born in x um then again i think since our daughter was in we put her in a french school we were lucky we met locals um i think we're both outgoing enough and my husband's french is so good people are always really impressed like oh you speak such good french and um so that Mm -hmm. enabled us in to make friends and i think because we weren't french we didn't fall into these categories of you know oh they're from there or you know they're not you know, nobility or, you know, whatever, you, you know, they couldn't really fit us into a box. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so uh, I was talking about the cigar, cigar club. So X is closed that way. And then, then you've got all these other closed bits of X. I mean, you've got the university, which is kind of a, you know, and then you've got all the lawyers because X is a law town. You've got the court system. Um, and then, and then I thought, well, I, I can put the cigar club in there. Cause then that's, that's this other closed society within this already closed town, you know, it's a private cigar smoking club. Um, but I put, I put it in there because it's, um, I try to make it kind of like the humorous chapter with, you know, these people, mm-hmm. they go after work, they put up their feet um, and they just, they have some wine or, and, and they smoke cigars and they joke around and they laugh and they tease each other. And, and, and so people um, will write to me and say, we, I really like that. I really like those chapters. I really like those chapters. So things like that, where I get worried, uh, you know, are people going to be, you know, anti-cigar or whatever, but people write, uh, readers write and say, no, we, we really like those, that, those chapters. So um, I think because of when readers write to you, then, then I think it's, it, you know, it is inspiring. Um, because you, you get ideas from them. Yeah, absolutely. It's validating, I think, to say, yes. oh, you really yeah. do like that. Because I think, yeah, yeah it's, again, the whole thought of the um, the going away from the Wallander kind of mm. style detective. I mean, you have, you know, a magistrate who sneaks extra brioche uh, versus one who's just sitting in a diner and, right. you know, drinking bad coffee and, you know, not... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> not really engaging, but there is such a um, a sense of, I think there are so many things that go into the food and the cigar club too. I mean, I'm interested too, like you mentioned it before that um, Marine is local mm-hmm. versus 
he is an outsider from Paris and mm-hmm. comes in and, and there's a lovely dynamic between him and one of his one of the detectives, I think, mm-hmm. who yeah. always feels intimidated and feels weird about eating with him and is like, oh, yeah. am I going to order the wrong thing? And right. I love how all of the the cultural elements also become like a, a mirror for class or a lens to look through about the other aspects of culture. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there, there are all those kind. there are all sorts of uh, things like that that you have to deal with, and especially accents too. Here, you know, if 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 you're from Marseille, you have a very specific kind of accent that's quite strong, um, you know, and uh, or from the the from the south, not not so much X, but in the villages around X, you, you know, you have that strong midi accent, and of course, uh, Antoine Verlac doesn't have that. And yet this character, Bruno, um, the commissioner you were talking about, he does, yeah. you know, he's, he's a farm boy. Um, and, and that's right. And then in the beginning too, he's intimidated by, by Antoine Verlac or not, not so much intimidated, but, but yeah, not wanting to, to make any mistakes. And um, just like Verlac's relationship with, with Marine Bonnet, uh, he and Bruno become, become good friends. Um you know, by, by the you know fourth or fifth book, not to the point where they're where they're doing uh, the bees, which is you know the kiss on either cheek, you know. Right. But they're at the point where you know Bruno walks into Antoine's office, makes himself a co- you know they shake hands, makes himself a coffee, and um, uh, and you know. But I think it's still formal enough that you know I want to keep that formality that you know the commissioner does work for the magistrate, and they're not going to be uh, you know, kissing each other on the cheek. <laughs> right. Even- exactly. I think, <laughs> so. I think in some ways, do you find as someone who has moved to France rather than a local that it, it allows you to notice detail that, um, that you wouldn't notice otherwise that being a writer from the outside, it, it makes a huge difference. I think definitely. Yes, definitely. Especially all those little social uh, cues that you have to, that, that I had to learn. Um, and that for a lot of French people, it's just second nature. So, uh, you know, the fact that you walk into a shop, you say hello to everyone in the shop. You know, if, if there's a lineup oh, yes. and, and you walk in to buy a baguette, you say, bonjour, monsieur, dame. You know, hello, gentlemen and, and ladies. And, and then when you leave, the same thing. Um, and everyone in the line says, you know, hello, goodbye. <laughs> so, uh, so things like that, I think that I really loved when we moved here. Um, so I, I, pri- I, I try to talk about that and, and bring that up in the books. I want to pause for a moment to speak about this week's sponsor, Audible. So if you are listening to Emma Longworth's story about how she up and moved to France, you may be wanting to use your audible.com trial to get a book that will transport you. Um, one of my very, very favorites is the book Tender at the Bone by Ruth Reichel which is read by the author. Um, I cannot think of a book that better communicates love of food and her relationship to France and how it transformed her life. So if you're looking for something that will carry you to France, just like Amel Longworth was able to do with her move to Aix-en-Provence, then I recommend using your trial at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible to pick up Tender at the Bone by Ruth Reichel, read by the author. Okay, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I think that's one of the details that's really wonderful is like all of the mm-hmm. setting. And then, and it is, I mean, there is usually a cultural element to what's happening 
with the characters in the story as well. Yeah, whether it's um, some kind of e- intrigue, business intrigue in, in X, or you know wh- whatever the mayor's the mayor might be up to, or, or yeah, just some kind of social setting in a restaurant. What's going on? Food it could be food food related. Um, or it could be sometimes newsworthy. I get the local, I would like to pick up the local paper here called La Provence, um, which people kind of make, like to make fun of. But, you know, every time I pick it up, I'll find some little article up on the third page where I think, oh, I can use that, you know, like, for example, mm. it'd be like a, you know, an ATM, a, a bank machine that was bombed, you, you know, but, you know, the bomb here, you know, the bomb didn't really work and it just kind of, you, you know, uh, you know, broke open the back of the door of the of the of the bank machine uh, thing. You know where nobody's heard or anything. But I'll read these little things, um, and then I think, oh, I've got to use that in the in the next book. Yeah, I love those local details. Um, do you think it's interesting too? Because as a fellow art history degree holder, mm-hmm. how do you think that the art, your art history background influenced it, rather than say coming from a specific creative writing only background? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, huh, I'd say, yeah, there are, there has been, I think maybe it's just my observation, my, my love of just looking mm-hmm. um, and then describing what I'm seeing. You have to do a f- some of that. You have to do that in, in art history. And usually you fall into art history, I think, because you love looking at, at what's around you and especially old things be- or beautiful things or... Um, or you're interested in history um, or the aesthetics, uh, an aesthetic aspect of history. So um, I don't know if the same, same is true for you, but I think we go into art history for those reasons. Um, so I think as a novelist, that only helps, um, you know, because you, you, you have to describe places, you have to describe settings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I'm always fascinated when people come to writing, you know, from another avenue, because I think mm-hmm. it's it's helpful to know so many people think, oh, well, I didn't get a writing degree, so therefore this is never possible for me, or, you know, I, I would have to get a degree. And, and I think whatever people have studied, the nice thing about writing is that you can bring that into it. Yes. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we all, we all bring our backgrounds into it. So, and, and, and the writing, the best way to learn how to write is just write, just keep writing, write and write and write, and then edit and edit and edit. How long did it take you to get to the point um, of being at the three-quarter mark of the first book? Oh, a few years, I'd say. Yeah. Because I, I kept starting and, and putting it away and starting it and putting it away. Yeah, because they seem to be flowing now. Like, you, you're you amazing in terms of it's so nice. I'm like, oh, I always have one to look forward to. Mm, um, yeah, now it's one a year, so. Yeah. 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 And is that, um, how is that pace? Like, how does that work? Like, what does your year look like in terms of putting one out every year? It, it means I do a lot of writing in the summer, over the summer months, because I, I teach at, at NYU. Um, but so so that's from September to early December. And then, then the semester starts up again in February, and then we finish in early May. So it means I'm doing a lot of writing over Christmas and January, and then a lot um, May, June, July, and August. Um but but that's okay, you know. It's doable because you know when you teach at a university, you you, you have to do research, you know. And, and my research, since I'm not an academic, I consider my my books, you know, is is what I have to be doing. So, um, 
you know, the academic it's year. Definitely is, publishing. Is seven months. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. They so always want the con- academics to publish. Yeah. You've got that yeah. covered. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, with Penguin, the contract is a book a year. So it's so far it's it's been doable. I also write on the train <laughs> when I go up oh, to Paris. Oh, lovely. Yeah, because it's it's three hour ride and and the TGVs are remarkably smooth, very smooth, very mm. quiet. Quiet. Um, it's not like being on an airplane. Uh, so I, I, I get a lot of work done on the on the train. There's no internet. There's no, you know, kitchen. You know, <laughs> nothing to interrupt you. So that's fantastic. Because mm. you basically started teaching at NYU in Paris right at the moment, you know, when you were about to get the book published. So those two things have happened together. And how did, how did the teaching influence your writing? Like just the experience of being with the students? Oh, I learned so much from them. Um, uh, And I think just the fact that we do, I do so much, we do so much reading together because we read a lot of essays together and, and then we do group editing. We do editing together. And um, so I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly learning about the editing process. So that helps my own work. Um, and then they're so, they're such generous writers. Um, you know, the things that I learned from them when their, their first essay is a memoir and, and, and I just feel so privileged because they're very honest um, and hard on themselves too. You, you know, they're not, I said, be careful with your memoir. You just can't be writing about yourself all the time. It has to be balanced. You know, the reader has to get something um, out of it. And, uh, and so I do learn a lot from them that way. Just, um, you know, they're funny and smart uh, and, and like I say, very honest. And, and these are freshmen. They're only 18. So mm-hmm. I, I do think there's nothing specific I can I can say that I learned from my own writing, but it's this big just this general thing of of you know writers being generous, um, you know, and, and not keeping anything back, and also um, having their own voice, which I think is really important. I said you know I don't want you to with these these early papers, I don't want you to sound like what you think a grad student should sound like, or what you think an academic should sound like, or what you think a historian should sound like. I want you to sound like you. Use your own voice. I think that's really important. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes when people are writing for themselves, it sounds very different. And then they start thinking, yeah. I have to I have to write with a capital W. And then it right. it all yeah. kind of gets it gets, I don't know, stilted or Yeah. Yeah. And the reader right. And the reader picks up right away on that. Absolutely. Yeah. What what so what do you find um I'm trying to think of exactly how to phrase this. Mm-hmm. What do you find that they need to learn if they have that voice? What do you think is often missing? Because I think of that response you had from that editor who said, you need to add the senses in. And that was the key. Do you find that there's often a key like um, the editor who said you were almost there? What are you finding with with students or those who are just getting started writing? What are they often missing? I think um, sometimes you uh, just uh, editing, you, you mm. know, I, I try, you, they have to do ver- multiple drafts. So that's something I said, it's not like high school where you can stay up all night, write an essay and then hand it in in the morning, you know. So yeah. you, you're going to you're gonna have to go through various drafts and polish your writing. It always has to be clear. You know, clarity is something we work on. You can't, it can't be confusing. Read it out loud to yourself to make sure that everything is very clear. Um, I want them to bring up, they're sometimes shy to use outside sources, to use other people's ideas, to use other people's words and to integrate that 
into the into their own narrative. So that's something that we we work on as well because they're really excited with the first essay that they finally get to write about themselves. You know, they don't have to write about <laughs> you know color symbolism in Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse or you know you know all those essays that you had to do in high school that are that right. are always about somebody else's writing. And so I said, now you're the writer. You're going to write. Um, but but I, again, to you know, you can't go off and just write only about yourself because then it becomes like a, the paper becomes it's dull because you know it's just somebody talking about themselves. Um, so there has to be that balance where you're writing about yourself, but you're also teaching us about something, or you're trying to raise a point about something. You know, there has to be this big idea uh, to your paper. So there are various things. I wouldn't say all of those things combined. You know, some some students are stronger with some of those things that I just mentioned than than others. Um, but, you know, no matter who the student is, there's always something that we can work on, you know, and, and these are students that did really well in high school. So, you know, they're, they're sort of A students already. Um, right. So by the time they get to NYU, but, but still there's, there, there's, there's enough that we to work on for two semesters. So, so as you are releasing, um, a book into the world, do you already have another one in the works? given yes. that you have this turnaround. Yeah. So yeah. how does that work for you? Because so, you're promoting one, but writing another. That's right. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a little hard. So in, in fact, the, the Bastide Blanche, which is the, the new one, I just, I had to get the, um, I have a sample, a copy, you know, that's for the critics. It's, it's the one that hasn't been right. edited yet, but I just had to pull that one off the shelf, shelf and kind of in, in my library and kind of look at it a little bit before, before this interview, because I'm so into the next book that I've got the characters names, you know, for the next book in my head. And that story right. in my head. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, who was that? What was the maid's name in the Bastille Blanche? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, not that I could forget ever forget somebody like Sandrine. But, you know, you do. It, it is quite odd that, you know, you finish editing one book. Then the marketing team come, takes over and starting to be promoted while you're starting the next book. Exactly. Well, when you're on a book a year, that's a that's yes. sort of a necessary process. And I have heard that before that people feel like, wait a minute, but I'm thinking about these other characters in this other situation. And now I have to kind of rewind my brain and potentially not reveal anything, particularly in a series like yours. (laughs) Oh, they don't know about that yet. (laughs) Exactly. But it's good to know that there's already another one in the works and that everyone who's going to fall in love with with the characters will be able to continue reading. There's nothing more wonderful I hope this for many of you listening that you are discovering the series for the first time because then you have like seven books ahead of you and um, you don't want to have to wait. You know, it's like when you fall in love with a series and it's like two books in and you're like, oh, I have to wait so long for the next one. But when you have a big, long run of it, it's just delicious. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have writers like, like that, at least I do, favorite writers where uh, I go on uh, on a binge and I read every single thing, every single book. Yes. you know, that, that, that they've written, you know, so, and then I'll reread them, certain favorite writers, you know, a few years later, I'll pull them off the shelves and then reread the whole series again. Who are some of your favorites? Um, Barbara Pym is mm. one of my favorite writers, uh, an English writer who wrote a lot in the, mostly in the 1950s, um, wrote stories uh, that are quite funny, I think, and very observant of either English village life or usually um, a, a neighborhood in, in London from the point of view always of a woman who's single, who's, 
who's quite marginalized maybe, but is, um, but who observes what's going on in, in her community, either in the village, often in the church, the Anglican church, or in her, in her um, parish in London and her neighborhood in London. And um, like I say, they're very funny. Um, they, she's been compared a lot to Barbara, uh, to uh, Jane Austen. And yet mm. they're, they're not romantic um, in the way Jane Austen's books are. There's, there isn't a Jane Austen's, books is usually a wedding at the end and in Barbara Pym's there's usually a separation at the end I mean, the, 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 which is celebrated the woman usually has a proposal and she says uh, no thanks <laughs> um, so, nice. I, so so in that way that I think they're very modern even though they were they were written in the 50s um, she and then in the early 60s uh, her publisher Jonathan Cape said uh, we're not interested anymore you're not fashionable enough for our readers you know because oh. it was swinging London. And so she kept her, she gave up. She, well, she tried a few more publishers and they all said, no, thank you. And she already had about six or seven books published at that point. And so she gave up, she stopped writing and she was a civil servant. So she kept working in the, in the, uh, at her government job and then retired to Oxfordshire and lived in a little cottage with her sister who was also retired. And then in um, 1977, the Times Literary Supplement asked um, various major English writers who they thought the most underrated writer of the century was. And Barbara Pym's came, name came up twice uh, on two different lists, yeah, including on Kingsley Amos' list. Um, so she, her books became overnight <laughs> sensation. They, they, were, they were brought back into print. And, um, and, but sadly, she had cancer by that time, and she died in 1980. Oh. But she was able to finish, to write two more books, uh, and those were published um, before she died. So, she's she's my favorite, one of my favorite writers, uh, and Anita Bruckner also, who just mm. died last year, the English writer, um, is I think a close second favorite. <laughs> Amazing. Now, I always love knowing who people are reading and and yeah. what the influence is kind of playing in the back of their mind. Right. Yeah. Th those two writers too, I'll, I'll, when I'm stumped, you know, if I'm writing something and I'm stumped, I'll go for a walk, which is something I always tell my students to do. But I'll also, sometimes I'll go back and read one of their books um, mm. because it's, it's like this comfort spot, you know, this, that, you know, I always feel good. I always feel um, inspired after reading one of their books, um, their characters, but also are very rich in, I think in, in, in both of the Barbara Pym and, and uh, Anita Bruckner. So they're ones I'll, I'll go back to. Amazing. Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. Like just get out. Don't keep grinding away when you feel stuck. Oh, yes. Take a moment. Yes. Yeah, that's the worst thing you can do is just look at the blank page or, you know, the, sc the computer screen, which is something I do too. I, you know, we, we all get stuck doing that. But, um, you know, or you just have to write and write and write and know, you know, sometimes I'll just start write dialogue. I'll be writing dialogue, you know, and I won't even being, uh, you know, I just, I'll try not even to, to stop. You know, I'll just write as quickly as I can. Just sort of he said, she said, he said, she said, you know, not even being very careful with it. Um, and then I'll go back and edit it and either I'll erase it or there'll be something. So before I erase it all, they like, no, this is garbage. There'll be, there'll be one little bit that I like or one little bit that will, will, will make me, will help me to, to move on to the next, to the next spot. Um, so, so I was, it's another thing I tell my students, if you're, if you're writing and, and you're, you know, you're not feeling inspired, but you're just writing to get something down on paper, it's never a waste. Even mm. if you do erase it all, right? There'll, there's something there. there. There'll be something tiny in there that that's going to help you. Yeah, it's like doing scales a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah. 
of exactly. going through the process of writing right. and then finding yeah. more. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And I know that everyone's going to enjoy the Bastille Blanche and um, great. <laughs> have a great time with that. And also to feel some inspiration potentially to expatriate based on your story, um, as well as to explore other cultures and, and to look out and notice everything around you as you're writing, because that can really inform and, and add to your stories. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody, as you know, or as some of you know, I am running a retreat this October with Kate Newberg and Tasha Harrison, who've both been on the show. And we wanted to have a little bit of a conversation so that you could learn more about the details. So here's that conversation. And we hope we'll see you in October in Portland. We're talking today about the retreat we're planning in Portland in October. It can be anywhere from 20 people to 35 people. Uh, as long as you're writing fiction or creative nonfiction and you're a lady, we definitely welcome you. And Caroline, you have been to our special magical location before. I have. It was actually, I have to give all the credit to the idea to the special magical location, which is I heard about the Kennedy School years ago and I actually went to a craft fair there. And I was kind of entranced. It was in the, quote, gym. Um, it was sort of like a precursor to, um, you know, all these craft fairs that you see nowadays, like the bigger ones, like Renegade. Mm -hmm. And so I went with my friend and I was like, ooh, this is cool. It's like an elementary school, but it's not. And then I went back last summer for Fourth of July weekend because I can't stand the heat and I leave Los Angeles whenever possible to somewhere colder. So I went to <laughs> Portland and I stayed there and I was like, oh my God. And I did all this work on my novel in our little room that we stayed in that looked like a classroom and it had a chalkboard on the wall and there was a desk where I could sit and work on my writing. And I was like, hmm, I think other people might dig this. I think this might be a good place for a retreat. You, you think? Can, you think? <laughs> so after I was on Lady Books yeah. with the ladies here a little while ago, I happened to mention this idea to Kate and Tasha, who said, hmm. Let's yes. do this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because we've been thinking about doing something like this like we were trying to do smaller stuff like local stuff we were planning things then you said hey i have this location I'm like bitch this is it yep this the universe saying let's do this come to portland and then i showed up with a spreadsheet <laughs> uh, yeah kate, and then kate, kate dropped the base with the spreadsheet look it was what four days it was like oh we might be thinking about doing this would you be interested yes okay <laughs> so that let's get on email <laughs> these are my ideas katie was like we need numbers 24 hours later these are the fucking numbers i got the numbers <laughs> they're so pretty too she well, she's queen good. of the spreadsheets thank you thank you but we'll come back to the spreadsheets <laughs> later yeah, yeah there yeah. is something to do with the spreadsheets you may think yeah how what does that have to do with writing you will know look we're offering just time to put time on your book that sounds weird put time on your book spend to, time to, with your book to yeah. focus on writing not necessarily yes. the business of writing or all that frenetic energy around writing everybody talks about how horrible writing is or how do you start writing or how do you start when you're stuck or all this other stuff like there's all this talk around writing but there's not a whole lot of writing going on at lots of events. Like, it's just like, oh, here's this thing you should do after you've written your book. This is the thing you should do to start your book. But there's not a ton of stuff 
out yeah. there for conferences or um, uh, what do we call this workshops or whatever to actually get you writing and give you opportunity to write at the workshop. Yeah, that was the thing that was important to us is we wanted to look at what we saw out there and what we thought we could do differently that would suit us better if we wanted to attend. All of us kind of secretly want to simultaneously do the Hermione time turner <laughs> and be in the workshop, but also participate in the workshop based on planning it. Yeah. Because as someone who goes to conferences and as an introvert, I go and then you're on, on, on the whole time and you don't really have time to get away, take a break and digest what you've just learned and start to use it. So Mm -hmm. we really wanted to develop a schedule where you get to get fired up and inspired by what we're presenting, but also have time to work on your writing and take advantage of the fact that you're away from your everyday distractions and what you face and why everybody is always asking, how do I find time to write? Perfect. Because (laughs) I mean, well, my main complaint about conferences, and I'm not going to name any specific conference, is just that like you said about being an introvert and then every time we go it's always like about the business of writing and I don't there's really there's no point in focusing on the business if you haven't written the book book yet like you have to write the book first and I find that a lot of um when you encounter a lot of writers there some of them are just starting out and they're just getting deluged with so much information about like the business of writing and nobody's really cultivating the writer. And I think that in what we're seeing now across the board for literature, especially with so many self-pub and ND pub writers out there is that there's been a real departure from focusing on the craft of writing and developing a story and just writing a good fucking book, you know? So I'm super into that. Something I would definitely like to see is like we've both we've all talked about having that time to write, but also creating that community. So with a small group of that could be anywhere from 20 people to 40 people, we definitely want to foster that sense of a small writing retreat. There's a reason it's a retreat, and not a conference. You know, conferences can be very loud and very like you can you can find great information at a conference, but it's definitely another thing to have that small group, be able to focus on your book, maybe find like-minded writers that you can continue those relationships after the retreat. I think that that camaraderie part is very important to us as well. Absolutely. Definitely. I think that it's sort of like when you think about applying for a writer's residency, I always think that sounds so appealing and it's like, oh, you could be out, you know, the whole fantasy about the torn sweater and the like cup of tea and the attractive view. And the cabin <laughs> on the in the woods exactly. or like some secret place, like a little tiny town tucked away in a mountain community <laughs> or some crap. Yeah, and then maybe you're like pacing back and forth with some nice classical music or something and then you sit down and you're just pouring pages and pages out. And I know people who have done these residencies and and gotten completely blocked in those situations. And I think what we would hope that you would take out of the time you're going to spend with us is that you have tools that if you wanted to do that kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you would be able to work through it. And that the tools we want to give you that we're each going to present are the tools that help you break through any kind of resistance you might encounter towards sitting down and writing your book and getting it on paper. And that 
if you did go and do a retreat like that, you would have friends that you made at the retreat that you could stay in contact with. You wouldn't feel like you're doing your book by yourself and that you have resources to fall back on should you need to. Caroline, you just nailed it right there. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like the resistance that we are like yeah. pretty much everything that we're all presenting is about the resistance you feel when you you think you've been blocked because I don't believe in, in writer's block. I think that you're it's either fear or inactivity that's keeping you from doing it. Like that's basically what it is. Either you, you fear that you're gonna, not, not going to be able to complete it or not be able to complete it the way that you think that it should be. Or you, you just are lazy as fuck and you can't find a way to get into the story. I mean, that like, really, like, there's two ways to get into it. It's like, you have to fucking do it and you have to, you have to believe you can do it. I think that every workshop that we're going to present is probably going to attack at some level that place where all of us are kind of like, oh my God, this story sucks. I can't finish it. <laughs> so let's talk about like what we, we're thinking about doing yeah how are we each going to attack resistance or woo resistance or cajole yeah. resistance or seduce resistance yeah all of <laughs> it. Seduce it just just make love to it Ta oh well goodness. tasha that's a good segue for your <laughs> uh, i mean but i'm not doing that uh no. well no, no 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 we're not gonna be talking about sex scenes i know that's kind of like my thing but no, I'm not talking about sex scenes. Um, I'm going to be talking about character development because I believe that most issues with plot come from poorly developed characters. This is something that I encounter with a lot with the writers I work with and in my own work. Whenever I come to a point where I can't figure out where to go, it's because I don't know my characters well enough and I don't know how they would react to whatever particular plot point I've put in front of them. So yes, we're going to go through my whole bullet journal of character development madness welcome to my brain <laughs> that sounds so good i'm so excited <laughs> and I, my workshop will be definitely more about a structural approach to plot so there was the joke earlier that i'm the spreadsheet queen i definitely look at plot as a way to kind of see how like your quote-unquote house is if you think of your book as a house like where Here are we go you guys <laughs> She's good with metaphors. It's always with building and renovating. She's gonna Katie's got a big ass house in her brain. I do. But if you think about it, it's like where do you walk into the house? You walk into that front first scene, right? So mm -hmm. it's, it's it does make sense. So definitely approaching your plot to see where it might be weak, but then you can strengthen it. So and then using spreadsheets to attack it <laughs> because they're juicy and fun and they can be pretty and creative i've yes. seen yes. these spreadsheets and they are delicious <laughs> Look, spreadsheets katie is like she's she's the beautiful mind of spreadsheets it's incredible <laughs> and what about you caroline well i think the other piece that i think ties together some of what each of you are doing but i like to play with tools that get into the unconscious both of the writer and the characters that you're writing about and this would be true of both fiction and nonfiction. i've done these processes with both memoir writers as well as novelists as well as short story writers and what I like to do is to utilize tarot in the process of developing both plot and character and the relationship so you could take that further. I like to use it to address blocks, places where you feel like the scene isn't working. Um, it's a tool that can really work well. And I like to use tarot as prompts. So I'm also going to be working with the whole arena of 
the use of prompt writing to support your project. So this is both writing you would do in your project as well as writing you would do alongside your project to further develop it. So Mm, mm. those tools will help you whenever you get stuck to keep going and to figure out why you're stuck, either because of characters that you figured out with Tasha, you can map them out and see things from a bird's eye view with what Kate's doing. And then we can work on kind of getting into the underpinnings, the collective of the story, and all of that juicy stuff that I really love. Look at how we just mending together like, I mean, what? (laughs) When the universe is in flow. Yeah. I mean, like, if you don't want to set up now, then you just basically don't want to be a good writer and you can just go off somewhere and just do other things besides writing. (laughs) You know, you could like be a waitress or, you know, dig a ditch or whatever or if you listen to all this and think i got that then then maybe we'll have you teach it another one when we do it in the future <laughs> if you've figured all these issues out then just let us I know i mean come let us know maybe we yeah. we think that y'all don't know and maybe we're just in the weeds but i am super i'm geeked to, to go to I, both of y'all's workshops oh yeah you know? i'm gonna be sitting there taking notes I mean, um, like, I know Katie's process, but I've never seen her, like, act it out. Like, I know, like, what her, her beautiful mind notebook looks like in all of her, her <laughs> spreadsheets. Yeah. I understand that. And I, like, I know, like, basically, like, an overview of what you do, Caroline. But I am really super geeked to see what you guys do. And then the great thing is, right after these workshops, you know, we'll have like a Q&A session, of course, but then it's like, you have like, I think we were talking about three or four hours to really apply what we were just talking about. So it's not just like, oh, you got great information and you'll forget it in your hotel room because you have to go next to a next panel. Like you get to apply what you're learning or, you know, what you may have forgotten because maybe you used to do this stuff. You're applying it right then and there. Yeah, exactly. it's a workshop a day. It's not like we're doing four or five things a day. It's a workshop a day. You have time to apply it. You can sit around and chitty chat with your writer friends that you've just met. Or you can have one-on-one time with us to talk about your your project. So, And also the food. Let's talk about uh, and food. And, uh, uh, food, hey, food. Hey, you should talk about the food because the food was important <laughs> to us early on. The food well, is good. for a good. number of reasons. Yeah, the food is mm-hmm. also one, like... We had to do it because of the deposit. But two, (laughs) we want to make it definitely fun and nourishing for y'all so that you don't have to really go off, quote unquote, campus if you think of it like it is a school. Mm -hmm. It is, in Um, fact, a campus. Breakfast and dinner are included. We'll have outings. So we're going to go to Powell's, the bookshop in Portland. I'm sure there's other things we'll think of. There'll probably be some woo shops and Solidify. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As we solidify the schedule, that stuff will definitely um come out so it's not just writing for four or five hours we're also feeding y'all we're also going out and exploring books we're also becoming friends oh how sappy is that (laughs) also there's a movie theater in the hotel i mean there's lots of bars there's a soaking pool i mean (laughs) yeah bring your bathing suit for sure i mean what what is is the weather like though in portland in In October? october It's crisp and pleasant to soak in hot water. Oh, it's a warm water. Okay. Oh, I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a heated oh. soaking pool, girl. <laughs> it's like a bathtub. Oh, it I'm is warm. It. it is a I'm warm tub of water that you I'm can done. soak in and stretch yourself and think about your writing. Yeah. All totally amazing. So mm-hmm. how, Kate, can they find out more? <laughs> 
you can go to our website, secretwriteaway.com. That's secret, write as in writer, away.com. We have the early bird registration coming up. Actually, it might be out by the time this episode goes live. We'll see. But that is coming up soon. Yes. So secretwriteaway.com. Either get your name on the list or snag your spot while the early bird pricing is available. Yes. We'll see you in Portland. Yay, Portland. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.